Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for joining. I'm Peter Schechter. I'm the director of the Adrian Arsch Latin America Center at the Atlantic Council. Um, today we're going to talk about the role of finance reform as a driver for Cuba's economic development. And, you know, I recognize that financial reform may not be as exciting as striking down the trade embargo or the travel ban, but we believe it is of absolutely essential importance to Cuba's economic success, and it has a direct bearing on the well-being and autonomy of the Cuban people. And for today's discussion, we're really fortunate to have two prominent experts and, and practitioners who've been immersed in this discussion for years. First, I'd like to welcome and thank uh, former Secretary Carlos Gutierrez. As many of you know, Secretary Gutierrez served as the Secretary of Commerce under President George W. Bush, and he is currently the chair of the Albright Stonebridge Group. Secretary Gutierrez spent 30 years with the Kellogg Company, including his position as chair of the board. He was born in Cuba and recently has advocated for a policy of engagement as the best way to help the Cuban people. Also with us today is Michael Klein. He is one of the two co-authors of our report and a professor of economics at Tufts University. He served as chief economist in the Office of International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury and was a visiting scholar at the IMF. A big thank you to both of you for taking the time to join us this morning. As we queue up this discussion, we should all remember that on March 21st, President Obama and the First Lady take off uh, and will be traveling to Cuba, the first president to do so in many decades. All eyes will be in Havana for this historic trip, and this trip cannot just be a victory lap. There's much more to be done on the island and with relations with the United States. With no external benefactor like Cuba's had in the past with the Soviet Union and with Venezuela really being in a calamitous state, it's no secret that Cuba's economy is floundering and that Cuba desperately needs access to capital. It needs resources to finance growth, to reduce the size of the state that can't sustain any longer the burden of economic near monopoly, However, little of economic significance can happen in Cuba until the country adopts a working financial system. We believe that this trip is an opportunity to put in motion one step noticeably missing from previous executive orders. We think that helping Cuban, Cuba's reform its economy is going to allow its citizens to have access to new capital, to grow businesses, to expand incomes, to improve the lives of millions of people. And we also think that this begins with welcoming Cuba to join one of the, inter, uh, of the international financial institutions, and we think that the Inter-American Development Bank, for many political reasons as well as economic ones, should be the first stop. The Cubans have got to want it, but the United States is a key to unlocking access to these international financial institutions. The United States and the international community can work with Cuba to put in place a working financial system which would substantially improve everyday lives. So I'm going to start by asking the guests a couple of questions, but then I'm going to open it up to Q&A. And when we do that, I'm going to ask you to press star 1 to ask your questions. You can also follow this conversation on Twitter. Our account is at ACLATAN, and the hashtag for this call is hashtag ACOOPENCUBA. So let me just begin with Michael Klein, the, one of the two authors of the report. Pavel Vidal, 
Professor Vidal couldn't be on the call today. But can we just back up a second, Michael, and discuss briefly the role that finance can play in development? Economic development just simply isn't possible without a working financial system. It, this isn't an issue just for bankers and economists. It has direct implications for ordinary people. This is something that you've stressed a lot in this report. Could you walk us through why finance is important, not only for economic transitions, for, but for the improvement of the lives of people um, and, 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 and citizens of Cuba? Well, thank you, Peter. And I would like to begin by acknowledging Pavel Vidal, my co-author on this report. It was a pleasure to work with him. Um, finance uh, has been described as not providing the clay for development, but being able to mold the clay. And the Cuba now sits at a position with the um, possible removal of the trade embargo and of the travel ban, with the expansion of private enterprises, with more remittances allowed to come into the country, this is setting the stage for an advance in the economy. But, you know, if you think of finance as the brains of the economy and physical capital and other things as the brawn, you need the brains to help move the resources to their, uh, the places where they offer the best return. As you were mentioning, finance could allow new firms to emerge and existing firms to grow. And we've seen a big expansion in private enterprise in Cuba but it's going to be stymied if there isn't the access to capital that these nascent firms will need and these small firms will need to grow. Also, people will need to borrow for, um, their, to buy homes, for home improvement, to purchase durables like refrigerators. And without a good financial system, people just won't be able to do that. Finally, finance makes transactions much easier and makes the economy operate much more efficiently. Without a good financial system where people are dependent only upon, say, cash for transactions, the economy won't be as vibrant as it could otherwise be. Lastly, I would mention that finance itself operates within a constellation of other uh, institutions within an economy and within a country. For example, uh, rule of law and uh, well-defined property rights, but also increasingly these days um, advanced technology, or not even so advanced. Um, one of the interesting things that we've seen is the way that in Africa there was a jump start of finance through mobile phone technology. And it's this really sort of striking advancement that's occurred in Africa. And it provides a bit of a roadmap for Cuba how it could also, with very little infrastructure, have a technological leap forward that would allow finance to develop. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Secretary Gutierrez, let me, let me turn to you, and, and forgive me for beginning with a more personal question, but Cuba is obviously a very personal issue for you. You left Cuba as a, as a, um, as a, you know, at a very young age, and you've been active in U.S.-Cuban issues ever since, both as a, as a, in the private sector and the Secretary of Commerce. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of people who would say that we really shouldn't engage further on economic issues and financial issues until there's been a full political opening and w until that the Cuban people have been given political liberties. 
And, um, you know, other people answer, well, you know, the important thing is to really improve the lot of the Cuban people as they are today. Walk us through a little bit how you feel. Should we, um, should we be engaging Cubans on economic issues if they, if the government has not provided any political liberties and, and political openings or insufficient political liberties? Thanks, Peter, and thanks for uh, organizing this call. I, I believe that what a lot of people miss and uh, a lot of people who are using the argument that we should not engage economically until there is a uh, there are changes politically. Uh, what they miss is that uh, the right to private property, the right to earn a living on your own and provide for your family is one of our most precious of human rights. So um, I don't necessarily uh, buy the idea that we're not fo- or these reforms aren't focused on human rights. In addition to that, there are discussions between the, the, the two governments and, and a, I think a very valuable conversation on uh, how um, human rights are defined in each country and, and, and concerns um, that our government has about human rights. And so that, that's taking place, and it's taking place in private, which is exactly where it should be taking place. Um, but let's not undersell what is happening here. Um, we are helping Cubans um, achieve a fundamental human right. And we're, we're being able to help them because the Cuban government has begun to open the economy. And that fundamental human right that we're involved with is uh, are things like private property and things like being able to learn, earn a living on your own and provide for your family. Uh, so I would just I would like to dispel the notion that the reforms and that the what we are supporting in terms of economic opening uh, that they are not related to human rights. I think that is a false perception. Thank you. Thank you, Secretary. Michael, let me, let me turn it back to you. Your, your paper has outlined um, uh, a number of hurdles and has provided recommendations for each of those hurdles facing Cuba today. How, how can um, international financial institutions actually engage with the Cubans to help them overcome some of these key hurdles? How have they done it with other countries? And what, what, what is the role of an institution like the Inter-American Development Bank to really help leverage reforms to improve the lot of Cuban people? Well, to answer that question, I think first we have to ask what are the particular challenges facing Cuba. And in our report, Pavel and I point out that Cuba has too few banks, Cuba has too many currencies. And to some extent, the resolution of these challenges are both technical issues. Um, For example, with the banking system, to create a more vibrant and more productive banking system, you also need regulation and supervision of the banks. And the international financial institutions, and in particular, the Inter-American Development Bank, can help provide technical assistance towards that end. Also, as, um, as you all know, 
Cuba has a dual currency system, which creates a lot of challenges. And the Diacero, the movement to the unification of the currencies, is going to be a challenge. When countries do this, even countries, you know, so-called advanced countries like when Germany had the reunification of the Ostmark and the Deutschmark, there are a lot of challenges involved, and there are experiences from that, um, from that and from other countries uh, of as you try to rationalize a system, what do you do? So I think the biggest support that could be provided for the Cuban economy and the Cuban government would be through these kinds of technical assistance by places like the Inter-American Development Bank. Thanks. Secretary Gutierrez, you, you've been, you've been um, uh, um, you know, really advocating for a greater engagement. And since we had you at the Atlantic Council in uh, last July, much has changed in Cuba. The U.S. and Cuba have signed uh, restored diplomatic relations, signed a pact to uh, begin scheduled flights. The number of American tourists have skyrocketed. Direct postal services have been resumed. Internet access is far from sufficient, but it's increasing. Airbnb and Netflix are now operating Cuba. Walk us through it. What, what would you want President Obama to do uh, in this last year of his office, and, and um, how do you rank the issue of joining an international financial institution such as the IDB on the list of things that the president ought to be doing on this trip to Cuba, and what other things should he be doing? Well, uh, first of all, I think it's great that the president is going to Cuba. And um, while it may be uh, discarded as symbolism and uh, just a photo opportunity, it is tremendously important symbolism. Uh, I agree with the, the, the paper, of Finance and Money in the New Cuban Economy, and it's right on. You cannot run an economy without uh, financial uh inputs without financial resources uh, because of our sanctions, which, by the way, are the strongest sanctions uh, that we have on any country in the world. Uh, for example, when Cuba pays uh, the U.S. for food or medicine, they have to pay cash in advance. N no one can run an economy uh, or a company on cash flow. They need credit uh, they need access to markets, and the U.S. should facilitate that because uh, it's not only access to capital, but it's also um, access to financial technology. Uh, the Cubans are going to uh, unify their currencies. It's something they want to do, but it, it is a tremendously complex task, uh, and I'm sure that a lot of the international financial institutions have had experiences that are similar, uh, and they could be uh, providing um, uh, a counsel to the Cuban government, uh, and I think the U.S. should encourage that. Um, and right now, a lot of it is, is being held up by, uh, by the U.S. being against any, uh, any participation or any engagement. So I would say that is that is point number one is uh, allow Cuba to gain the expertise, uh, but also eventually have access to capital. There's no way that they can grow their economy 
without being able to to borrow from these institutions. It just doesn't work that way in a company, let alone a uh, a full blown economy. Um, uh, we also need to continue to uh, make sure that our regulations are in tune with Cuban re regulations. Uh, too often we write regulations on our own and assume that, uh, that Cuba will agree and vice versa. We need more coordination uh, on uh, regulatory aspects of this. And then I, I would also urge the president uh, here in our home country to uh, to try to get the travel ban lifted, it is uh, it is pretty absurd that U.S. citizens are not allowed to be tourists in a country that is 90 miles away from our shores um, because of something that happened during the Cold War. It's time to begin to build a bridge. It's time to allow uh, Americans to make friends in Cuba. Cubans to make friends in the U.S. Uh, and start rebuilding the bridge that has been totally uh, knocked over. So uh, I, I agree with the paper. I think number one is, is finance and money. Um, you cannot run an economy without having access to capital, access to capital markets. Uh, and right now Cuba has been totally, uh, totally isolated because of our sanctions. Yeah, let me let me ask uh, Michael one last question before I open to uh, to questions from the participants on the call. Just as a reminder, if you want to ask a question, please press star one, and we'll be queuing people up for uh, for questions now. Michael, you 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 can just walk us quickly through. You, you've outlined five main hurdles, and and you talked about those hurdles before. What, what would you say are the uh, two or three absolutely salient recommendations that this paper uh, gives to the United States and Cuba that should be the top of the president's list and of his agenda to discuss with President Castro when he's there on the 21st? Well, I think uh, financial liberalization is really key. As Secretary Gutierrez was saying, you need a well-functioning financial system for an economy to operate. And financial liberalization can occur both um, from actions by the Cuban government, for example, to allow um, foreign financial institutions to operate in Cuba, and by actions by the United States government to allow um, banks um, from the United States to offer services to Cuban citizens in Cuba and to set up in Cuba. But I think the other you know, really large issue, also as uh, Secretary Gutierrez referred to, is the issue of monetary unification. In an economy that's distorted by having two different currencies, um, any kind of transactions are going to be complicated. In particular, financial transactions are going to be complicated. So the movement towards financial liberalization and the movement towards monetary unification have to go hand in hand. And there are challenges. So I think the final point is that the Cuban government would benefit from technical assistance as it faces these challenges by turning to places like the, I, um, the IDB. And the United States could help us along by allowing this to happen and not um, having a roadblock that would prevent this kind of advice from being offered to Cuba. Michael, thank you. Uh, once again, please press 
star one if you want to queue up and ask a question. Let me um, open the mic up for uh, Cynthia Ayuso from El País in Madrid. Please, uh, please go ahead and ask the first question. Hello, thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hello? Oh, thank you. Sorry. Uh, yes, uh, you just mentioned the importance of uh, giving Cuba access to international financial institutions and the importance that the, I mean, U.S. Uh, has so far the the, the, the close to that. My question is because um, even we're in election year, in a year in a year we'll have a new president of the U.S., many of the things that have been done seem pretty reversible, I think, but this could be one of the things that the next president, if it's a Republican who has thought to not continue the, the opening to Cuba, could eventually stop. So my question is, how urgent is that the U.S. lift its ban to this to Cuba's access to financial institutions, and how feasible it is that the U.S. could do that before President Obama leaves the White House. Thank you. Uh, Michael, um, would you look? Sure. I think that, you know, politics in pol I mean, Secretary Gutierrez is a much better place than me to speak to these things, but, you know, as an outside observer, um, and as, you know, when I served in the government, one thing I noticed was that things can become normalized very quickly. And there is a general support for normalization of relations with Cuba. Once that's taken off the table, once the um, relations have been normalized, even to a greater extent than what we've seen, it ceases to be an issue. And I don't think there would be the kind of groundswell of support for a reversal. But I'd be very interested in what Secretary Gutierrez has to say about this. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that as the more time passes that for a new president to come in and close down the embassy and, and backtrack and take us back to 1959, I think it would be a very unpopular decision. It may be popular in certain geographies of the U.S., Miami and New Jersey, but I think with the overall U.S. population it would be very unpopular. The fact that President Obama is going down uh, in March will will make this a an issue in the in the presidential campaign. I think it should be because it hasn't become one. So uh, I would tend to agree that um, that every day that goes by, this this policy becomes more ir irreversible, and I think it would be a very unpopular decision for a new president to reverse, regardless of their party. Great. Uh, Jose Juan Ruiz, thanks for joining us. Jose Juan is the chief economist at the Inter-American Development Bank. Go ahead. Hello. Uh, I fully agree with the idea that uh, Cuba has to join the, the multilateral institution. But uh, let me, let me uh, raise your two questions. First of all, uh, you are thinking of multilateral institution as the only provider of capital. I think this is going to, 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 to be a... Uh, uh, failure because we have evolved and today we are more sharing knowledge and sharing knowledge about how to frame all these regulation and markets that are also needed for, for, for Cuba. Uh, the, the second point is today multilateral institutions not only have these political impediments to, 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 to have Cuba as a member, we have also capital constraints and the effort that has to be made in Cuba I think that uh, asked for a full membership of Cuba 
in not just the ADB or the World Bank, but the IMF. I think, and of course, the access to capital, international capital markets. I think that it will be very narrow if we focus just that you know, we think that just Cuba joining the IDB or joining uh, other multilateral, regional multilateral institutions are going to solve the problem of lack of capital. I think this is very, very important to keep in mind, not to overestimate which are our financial strengths and try to get Cuba not just with the multilaterals, also with the capital markets and also uh, to create inside uh, environments to have foreign debt investment and private investment in Cuba. What we need is to develop a private sector in Cuba. Thank you. Uh, thank you for those remarks. Um, I think, you know, I, I was not alluding to the provision of capital necessarily by the IDB, more the provisional of technical assistance. And I think you're right. I think we have to look to the world capital market, not to multilateral institutions. But by being linked with the IDB or joining the IMF, you know, that often can serve as sort of the good housekeeping seal of approval for countries that make uh, participants in the world capital market more willing to supply capital and more comfortable to supply capital. So I wasn't really thinking about the IDB or even the IMF providing funds as much as providing technical assistance and giving through that assurances to the world capital market that these kinds of investment opportunities do look, in fact, like they're feasible and could be pursued. Secretary Gutierrez, would you like to add a little bit? I mean, the, 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 that's what the role that a lot of these international financial institutions have played in the past, as, as, the, as Michael said, the good housekeeping seal of approval, and that leads that they, in the end, become a catalyst to further capital from capital markets. Would you like to comment yeah. on that? Yeah, you know, e even though uh, the, the the U.S. and the, the president have stated that um, there could be credit extended to entrepreneurs in Cuba, um, most, if not all, U.S. banks, uh, multinational banks, have been reluctant to go into Cuba because they're just not sure that they would be subject to uh, garnishment, subject to claims. Um, so, you know, they're gun-shy. And I think the U.S. government can make it clear that for certain transactions, those banks can go into Cuba. Uh, Non-U.S. banks are concerned about the extraterritoriality of, of Helms-Burton. So if they have assets in the U.S., they're going to be very careful about going into Cuba and having problems with the U.S. So there's a lot here that the U.S. can do, and I think for the immediate term, uh, clarification that, uh, that U.S. banks are safe or banks are safe to go into Cuba. Uh, and I, I think that would make a big difference to, uh, to the banking industry. Yeah, absolutely. Next question from uh, Portia Siegelbaum, CBS News Bureau Chief. Please go ahead. Yes, sir. Thank you for doing this. I got on the call late, so I hope someone hasn't already asked this. But is it possible for President Obama to sign an executive order making it legal for the Cubans to do international transactions in dollars, and how much of a difference would that make? They keep insisting on this point. 
uh, as key to normalizing relations. Michael, I, former Treasury person, I'm going to turn that over to you. Ah, um, you should be turning it over to a former Treasury person who's a lawyer, not an economist for that. Um, I'm not sure the scope of uh, executive action um, with respect to that, if the President by himself could do that. But it certainly is important that, um, that Cuban enterprises could use dollars in transactions. You know, most international trade um, is denominated in dollars, not just between the United States and other countries, but in fact between other countries um, that aren't the United States. So an inability to trade in dollars really uh, hobbles a country's ability to engage in international trade. But whether or not an executive um, order or an executive action could do that, I just I can't um, really speak to that. I don't know um, how that would work. Um, let me move to the next question. Um, and Secretary Gutierrez, did you have something? Did you, would you, did you want to comment well, on that? Well, it's, it's a very good question, and it, this is all tied in. First of all, it's tied into to, uh, the sanctions, and it's tied into Helms-Burton, and uh, so I, I believe this would have to be part of lifting sanctions. Uh, but it, it also gets tied up in the whole concept of claims. So U.S. citizens can use dollars in Cuba, but Cubans can't use dollars outside of Cuba. Um, and and part of it is if you start, if you open that up, are those dollars going to be subject to garnishment? And um, do, do we have to solve the claims first before you actually let that loose? So they're both tied together, and there are discussions going on right now regarding uh, expropriation claims. And I think that will pave the way uh, to have an opening for U.S. dollars to be used outside of Cuba, whether it is to a regulation or whether it is by carving out a piece of the sanctions and taking a vote on that. Thank you. Uh, Dr. David Lewis, Manchester Trade, please go ahead. Yes, good morning. Uh, thank you, everybody. Um, I was curious, any comments on the fact that uh, Cuba has no trade or financial restrictions with the European Union, Canada, or countries in Latin America, and yet uh, we don't see growth in trade or in that financial linkage. And also, I understand the Corporación Andina de Fomento is starting work with Cuba, uh, can any of the speakers comment on that if you have information on that? Thank you. Well, until recently, um, it had been the case that firms uh, or banks that engaged with Cuba, as uh, Secretary Gutierrez was saying, were uh, subject to the possibility of extraterritorial sanctions. So, you know, it's only a very recent period where, um, where that hasn't been the case. Um, but you do see uh, presence of, uh, especially like Spanish banks and Spanish firms in Cuba. I think with the removal of the threat of the United States taking action against countries, you'll see an expansion of that. But also, you know, the, the United States is a very big country that's very close to Cuba and uh, is close both in terms of geographically and in terms of the diaspora. 
So the United States has an outsized, outside, outsized role to play in uh, providing capital to the Cuban economy and helping the development of the financial system of Cuba. Secretary Gutierrez? Yeah, no, there's no question that uh, European firms have uh, a, a stronger foothold than, than American firms. And, you know, they're, you can take examples like uh, Melia Hotels out of Spain, um, Nestle, my goodness, out of Switzerland. They, they have quite an operation in Cuba. Um, the, what, what many European uh, companies and banks have seen is that um, they could be fined some very high amounts if they fall into the, the, the sanctions trap, uh, doing business with a, uh, a nationalized firm, expropriated assets, if they have assets in the U.S. Uh, so it, it, we can't underestimate how much U.S. sanctions um, put pressure on foreign companies to just not look for problems or not get themselves in problems. They would, they would rather avoid it, keep on doing business in the U.S., not be fined, um, and not go near Cuba right now. So th there is a, an impact of, of U.S. law on the rest of the world because of the title of Helms-Burton that, that, is, that is extraterritorial. And, and uh, Mr. Secretary, let me add, let me follow up with a with a question on that too. I mean, and how does that position? I mean, doesn't this long-term bias against U.S. companies also, you know, create a, a detriment and a and an advantage for European or Chinese or Asian companies who are interested in in opening the the Cuban market? And while they run risks of dollarized transactions, certainly puts. U.S. companies, I mean, you mentioned Nestle, you used to be so connected with Kellogg. It put, I, I imagine this puts U.S. companies at a great disadvantage. Yeah, there's no question. Um, and, you know, the brands that are being, uh, that are being um, uh, developed in Cuba, I, I was really taken aback by the amount of uh, point-of-sale advertising that there is for, you know, brands like Maggie uh, owned by Nestle. So, so Cubans are... You know, uh, having um, having access to European automobile brands, uh, European food brands, uh, European hotel brands, uh, but you don't see much in the way of uh, U.S. brands. So uh, there's no question that as as uh, Cuba continues to reform its economy, uh, while we have sanctions in place. It is ironic that the U.S. is the one who is isolated. You know, the sanctions were intended to isolate Cuba. Uh, every year a vote is taken in the U.N., and um, the U.S. is by itself voting to keep the embargo in place. So it's the U.S. that has been isolated, and, and very specifically, U.S. companies uh, are being uh, isolated. So... Uh, no doubt about it, uh, it, U.S. companies are at a serious disadvantage. I just I'll say another thing, too, is uh, Cuba's always relied on one big market, so we, they relied on the U.S. for over 80% of their economy. 
They relied on the Soviet Union for 80% of the economy. They relied on Venezuela for almost half of their economy. And, and I think what they're trying to do is balance out um, their investments. And I think in their ideal world, they'd get 25% from the U.S., 25% from Europe, 25% from Asia, 25% from the rest of the world. So even though, um, you know, there is great geographic proximity, I think the Cubans want to diversify. So today in Havana, you see uh, uh, Chinese-made buses and a lot of Chinese-made products, and uh, and they'd like to keep a balanced portfolio. Thank you. Uh, Alfonso Fernandez from EFE, please go ahead. Yeah, hello. Good morning. Just uh, one quick question. How long do you see it will take for this dia, dia zero, day zero for the unification of currencies? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, in an early draft of the paper, I called these days uh, dia negativos. So um, how long will this last? I'm not sure. I think, you know, there are challenges. But the more the economy opens, the more pressure there will be for a unification. And that would hasten the day, you know, the dia cierros uh, day, I believe. But these things are both economic and political. And the political comes, you know, from uh, both the United States and Cuba, largely from Cuba, but, you know, the United States has a role as well. So uh, it's very, I think it's very hard to say when Diazero will be, but as the economy integrates with the rest of the world through more trade, as political, um, political walls fall, I think Diazero will come uh, closer and closer to the present. Yeah, and I, just to add to that, um, you know, the, the, the Cuban government has stated that they want to do it in a way uh, that isn't reminiscent of the shock plans that we all remember in Latin America um, where, you you know, you put the, the, uh, the economy in a tremendous recession so that you can rebuild. Uh, they don't want hyperinflation, so you know they're they're trying to they're they're, they're trying to uh, walk a tightrope here, and and that's why they're being so cautious and so gradual. So it, it, it's really very uh, difficult to say when they're going to actually uh, do it. I would say that. We should watch the upcoming Congress, the Party Congress, in April uh, to see if there are any signs of any um, or any indications of when that could happen. Uh, but this is clearly on the minds of of all uh, Cuban policymakers, economic policymakers. The question is, how do you do it in a way that doesn't send the economy into a hyperinflationary spiral? Uh, or, um, you know, one of these uh, shock plans that we used to see in Latin America. And just to reiterate what we were saying earlier, I think there is an important role for places like the Inter-American Development Bank, um, places that have experiences with countries that have tried these difficult trans uh, transitions to help out the government in, as it formulates its plans for moving forward. We have time for um, just a very few more questions. So let me start by uh, Sarahi 
Salim Bide from the International Republican Institute. Hi, uh, just thank you, Michael and Secretary Gutierrez. First of all, uh, my question uh, goes back a little bit to the first question that Secretary Gutierrez was asked about whether we should engage Cubans before we see political changes. So if yeah. Cuban activists, what their most important need is, many of them identify economic stability in Cuba, but it's not because of currency or finance issues like we've talked about today. It's because anybody discovered or labeled as a political activist in Cuba is immediately barred by the government from working in the state-run economy. So these hundreds of people can no longer work or contribute to the economy by working or by, or by spending money. Um, so essentially, our role helping Cubans achieve in helping Cubans achieve the fundamental right of privacy and earning a living will continue to be impossible for Cubans that are fighting for other fundamental rights that we believe in as Americans. So my question would be, if our policy is to help improve the economy, shouldn't the president insist just as much on Cuban reform of its human rights violations? The president has two hands and can use both of them and talk about economic reform at the same time as uh, greater political rights. But also, you know, when the president started talking about this, he said, this is a failed policy. This has been going on since the early 1960s, and it hasn't worked. To engage Cuba, to bring Cuba into the world economy, I think is a powerful step forward, not only for the, um, the government, but more importantly for the people of Cuba. Furthermore, as Secretary Gutierrez was alluding to, you know, a fundamental human right is the right of, uh, of economic rights, and it also sets up an alternative power structure to the government. It won't be just the government that controls the means of production. There will be private property, and this can be a very powerful counterweight to the government. So I don't see, you know, as Secretary Gutierrez said, I don't see a contradiction here at all. Yeah. Secretary, you want to add something? Yeah, and no, I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that, you know, the, the part that you were saying that um, those who are not in line with the political system don't get a license to open up their own business, those are the types of things that are being discussed. Uh, but I think we should focus on those that are able to work in the private sector. We're talking about 500,000 people. Uh, and, and we have seen this uh, firsthand, you know, uh, people now buying and selling homes. So the, the right to private property is beginning to uh, develop in Cuba. That is a very important human right. Uh, we have seen people now driving private taxis. Well, the right to own your own business and make a living and work hard, we see that as a very valuable human right. Uh, and you can go on and on about new businesses and entrepreneurs that you see uh, in the open in Cuba today that you would not have seen, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10 years ago. Um, it's interesting that if, if, you know, we say that, the embargo is in place because we want to help the Cuban people. Um, and I think it's, you know, the, the, the question that needs to be asked, it's a fair question, is, well, over the last 57 years, have we, or last, you know, 55 years, have we helped the Cuban people? 
and surveys that have been done in Cuba. Um, and I and I recognize that it's not easy to do a survey in Cuba, but uh, this would seem to me very logical. That I think uh, you know, 95, 97 percent of Cubans would like to see the sanctions lifted. Why? Because the economic aspects of human rights are on their minds. They're thinking now about: Can I buy a new car? Can I feed my family? Can I maybe one day buy a new home? Um, and because we have that opening, I think we should be helping them because, again, economic freedom is a human right. There are other human rights that we, uh, that we uh, don't agree with, that we are having discussions. I say we, the U.S. government, having discussions with the Cuban government, but we can't wait to get 100% right in order to move ahead um, with helping the Cuban people and where we can help them. Um, so that, that's how I would answer your, your question is we have the opportunity to help them economically, and um, we should do it. I, 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 I would find it very hard to explain to the average Cuban citizen why the embargo is in their favor and why we think we're helping them. Thank you. Let me take. Let me give uh, the last question to um, Alec Watson from Hills and Company. And Alec was former Assistant Secretary of State for Latin America, so um, the right person to uh, ask the last question. Alec, welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Secretary uh, Gutierrez uh, made an excellent point about uh, just now, and also at the beginning of his presentation about the importance of property rights and rule of law as human rights. And I'm just wondering um, what the prognosis is for the Cuban government to move forward in both of these areas uh, in the near future. <clears throat> Obviously, there will be pressure coming from the uh, folks that are getting themselves involved in the private sector uh, uh, already, but certainly they and anybody else who's interested in doing business in Cuba would like to see some formalization of rule of law and particularly protection of property rights. I'd just be interested in any prognosis uh, Secretary Gutierrez or Michael Klein has on this. Yeah, Secretary? Okay, great. Yeah, you know, there is some, uh, some talk that um, there may be further movement on uh, property rights coming out of this next Congress. Uh, which would definitely be a step in, in, in the right direction. Um, you know, and, and you're, you're seeing um, larger businesses uh, open up in the economy. So I, I think that's, it, it is a fundamental change. It is a, it is a strategic change. That isn't to say that Cuba doesn't want to remain a socialist country, but the way they describe it is a socialist country with a, with a private sector. Um, so, you know, it doesn't mean that they have decided to to make the leap into capitalism, but they're trying to uh, trying to bridge both uh, a private sector and a state sector together. And look, inside Cuba, there's a lot of debate. Uh, there, you know, people in the state sector are saying, well, why is it that only entrepreneurs are important? And there are people who don't want to see 
uh, inequality surfacing from uh, the entrepreneurial sector. So we should also not underestimate that inside of Cuba there is also political debate, believe it or not. And uh, we should do what we can uh, to help the reformers by, you know, uh, encouraging that and by helping their economic reforms uh, because they're not, they're not alone. There's another side to this coin, and there are people who would like to keep uh, kind of an orthodox Marxist-Leninist economic model in place. Thank you. Thank you. I would just add to that, at the uh, top of the hour, I talked about finance being a necessary but not sufficient part of development. And it's necessary because it helps, you know, as I said then, sort of mold the clay. But it's not sufficient because you need the clay, but you also need a constellation of things like property rights and well-functioning institutions in order to um, have finance actually play its role. So uh, I think that if the government wants to have a greater development of the private sector, which seems really important for the Cuban government now that uh, the, pa the patrons of the Soviet Union are no longer there, or Venezuela, so it has to become more self-sufficient, and it needs a private sector to do that, it's going to find that, um, as the Secretary was alluding to, there's going to have to be a greater definition and um, response to the desire for property rights for finance to develop, for the economy to develop. So it might become just a necessity for the government to respond to these kinds of things as it faces a wide range of challenges uh, into the future. Thank you very much. Um, uh, our, our time is up, unfortunately. I'd like to thank uh, very much uh, Secretary Gutierrez for having spent some time with us. Michael, congratulations on yours and Pavel Vidal's report. I think it's a, it's a really compelling read. We at the Atlantic Council are absolutely convinced that um, economic rights are of central, central importance to the well-being, uh, uh, the growth, the autonomy, uh, of, of the Cuban people, with, without those, as, as both speakers today have reiterated numerous times, um, it's difficult to imagine how Cubans grow businesses, how they buy, um, how they buy goods, how they uh, improve their livelihood, and how they hope for a better future. So we will continue to push this issue. It's, we think it's important. And thank you to everybody who has uh, joined this call today. Thanks very much, and good morning. Thank you.